When you follow God's word, the world will oppose you, but God will judge the world and give you his perspective and power to endure. When you welcome God's word into your life and act on it, it will change your life completely. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. be so kind to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, we're going to begin at verse 13 today, finish this chapter. Paul, as you recall, came to the Thessalonian church probably somewhere around 50 to 52 AD, so somewhere 20 plus years or thereabouts after uh, the resurrection. He only spent a few months in this church, in this particular location, and then he was driven out by Jewish and Gentile opposition. He left a very, very young church. So he was probably there three, four, five months, and then he had to leave. He traveled to Berea uh, down south, and then to Athens even further south, and then finally a little bit west over to the Corinth. So he's in Corinth, and he's starting to worry about this church. It's a new church, it's a young church, and he had to leave them under very, very fast circumstances. He was ran out of Dodge, if you will say. So he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, to the city, to find out how they were doing. And Timothy came back and said, they're doing really well. They're standing firm in their faith. They're under a lot of persecution. They're under a lot of harassment. But they're genuinely strong in their faith. And so Paul writes them this letter. And he wants to express his gratitude for their faith. And he also wants to encourage them. So beginning in chapter 2, last week, the first 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul is talking about how he delivered the gospel message to them. He says, here's how we lived. We were consistent, we were transparent, we spoke the truth to you, and we lived the truth in front of you, and you saw all that. So he's reminding them of what was it like when he came there, because Paul's been attacked for being uh, disingenuous, for being a counterfeit. So he's reminding them, when we were there, remember how we behaved? We behaved in a transparent, truthful, honorable, God-honoring manner. And now, the last 13 verses or so, seven verses, rather, 13 to 20 of this chapter, He's reminding them how they received the gospel. So the first part of chapter 2 is how I delivered the gospel to you. The second few verses are how you received uh, the gospel. Now, they received the gospel with a great deal of faith, and they encountered a great deal of opposition from both religious Jews and pagan Gentiles. And despite all this, Paul has a great deal of joy. This book is filled with joy and gratitude despite a great deal of trouble and trials. So let's pick up the narrative in uh, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Here's the principle. When you welcome God's word into your life and act on it, it will change your life completely. When you welcome God's word into your life and act on it, it will change your life completely. Now, Paul is thanking God, and he's thanking God, interestingly enough, he's constantly thanking God. He's thanking God that when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, they understood it, and they accepted it as God's word. Now, this word constantly convicts me because Paul also commands in the future Pray without ceasing. Pray without interruption. Be thankful constantly. Be thankful habitually. And that's what he's basically saying. He made a habit of being thankful. And he's grateful that they understood that the gospel came from God and not from human opinion. He says, you received the word of God, right? Now that has to do with literally hearing it and understanding it, as in receiving a body of truth. So Paul was there. He proclaimed the gospel to them. And he said, you stood still, you sat still, and you heard it. You received it. That's the hearing of the ear. There's another Greek word for this word, received, and it's accepted. 
And the word accepted means you welcomed the word. You embraced the word. You just didn't hear it with your ears. You heard it with your heart. Jesus said in Mark 4, 23, a very interesting phrase. He said, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, make sure that you hear. Not everyone who has ears uses them to hear. Sometimes their ears just hold up their glasses, right? <laughs> Sound waves hitting your eardrums are interpreted by your brain as hearing. That doesn't mean you're taking inside what's hitting your eardrums, right? You have children, you have grandchildren, and you have spouses and friends, and sometimes they go, yeah, uh huh, yeah, uh huh, yeah, uh huh. And you're saying, you're not hearing what I'm saying, right? Jesus said, make sure that you hear. It takes intention and attention to hear what God says. Jesus not only said, make sure that you hear, he said in Mark 4, 24, take care what you listen to. John 3, or Luke 3, 1 to 12, records that the word of God came to John, the Baptist, about 29 AD in the wilderness when it was so quiet, he could hear God speak. Now, when's the last time you were quiet enough to hear God speak? Marin and I were in Egypt. We had a meal, a dinner, in a Bedouin camp on the Sinai Peninsula. If you've ever been to the Sinai Peninsula, there's a lot of desert, and that's all there is. So after dinner... We drive across the dirt road. I mean, this is a dirt road, and you're in the middle of the desert, and the driver stops the van, turns the engine off, turns the lights off, and you get outside. And there is nothing but you and the night sky. It is absolute dead quiet. And it's utterly amazing when there's no sound and there's no light pollution how many stars you can see. It was so quiet you could hear your own heartbeat. The night sky was pitch black, and these candles, these, uh, these candles, these stars were like Roman candles. No noise pollution, no light pollution. I thought about Abraham. God told him, go out and count the stars. And he could actually see probably 3,000 stars with a naked eye. And then Marin and I thought about the Israelites. Two million people camping out under the night sky every night for 40 years and whining every step of the way, right? <laughs> we live in a very noisy world, and it's filled with human opinion that is doing its best to influence you. You are all being influenced as we speak. The question is, Jesus said, take care what you choose to listen to because you will be influenced by what you're listening to. And Satan's a master of influence because he wants to influence you without you knowing you're being influenced. And that's happening in our world. Take care to listen to God first. If you begin your day with Jesus, he'll give you insight to understand everything else. The third thing Jesus said in Luke 18, 8, 18, take care how you listen. And he made this statement after he told the parable about the sower and the seed and the four kinds of soils. One of, the, one of the soils by the roadside was so hard that the seed couldn't penetrate the surface and sprout. So the birds came and ate up the seed. Remember that Jesus said the seed is God's word, the soil is the person's heart who hears God's word, and the birds that steal away the soil are the devil. The message is real simple. Don't be calloused toward God's word. Otherwise, it won't penetrate your heart. Don't be casual about God's word or you're going to wind up a spiritual casualty. Good soil is a soil, is a heart that welcomes God's word and it produces fruit. And that's what Paul was so grateful for. The Thessalonians had a heart that welcomed the word of God. In the last recorded letter to the Apostle Paul wrote, he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth 
and will turn aside to myths. Does that sound familiar in our culture today? God's word requires us to hear it and to welcome it into our lives, and the Thessalonians treated God's word as divine truth. In other words, as coming from God himself. Paul says, the word of God did not come to you as the words of men. The Bible is not a man-made message. The Bible was written down by 40 human authors over more than 1,600 years of history in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and there is not one contradiction in this text over 1,500 years with 40 authors. It's an integrated message system with one theme about Jesus Christ the Son, and the origin of this word is demonstrably extraterrestrial. It contains hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled, and hundreds more that are yet to be fulfilled. And only the God who lives outside space and time can predict and control what takes place inside space and time, so he makes predictions and then makes them happen. Demonstrably extraterrestrial origin. He says, you accepted this word for what it really is, the word of God. He really, truly, of course, is speaking to facts. Now, the origin of the Bible is God, and the nature of the Bible is supernatural. We know that. The fact of inspiration is found in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is what? Inspired by God and profitable. Interesting. Inspired means God breathed. Literally, the means of inspiration is the outbreathing of God. And we say the word of God is verbally inspired, not just the ideas in here, but the words themselves were inspired by God. By the way, for those of you that have a question, God says what he means and means what he says. Does that make sense? He has no problem communicating with us. We might have problems hearing because we don't want to hear, but God means what he says and says what he means. So when he writes it down in language we can understand, it is clear. We say the Bible is not only inspired, it's verbally inspired, it's plenary. That means it's full, it's complete, it's entire. All parts of the Bible are inspired. There is no part of the Bible that is not inspired. Everything comes from God. All scriptures inspired by God. We say it's infallible. It's incapable of mistake. It's unable to be wrong because God is not a God of error. And we use the word inerrant. We say the Bible is inerrant. It's free from error. It's completely accurate. God is a God of truth, and therefore, surprise, surprise, his word is what? Truth. Now, the how of inspiration is found in 2 Peter 1. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So God, the author of Scripture, uses human beings as instruments to transmit his message. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. The word is literally driven along by the Holy Spirit. And this driven along refers to wind, Driven along literally is the wind that drives the sail of a ship. So a sailing ship is driven and carried and moved by the power and control of the wind. In a similar fashion, holy men of God were carried along and moved and controlled and directed by the Holy Spirit to produce the books of the Bible. Jesus said the Holy Spirit moves like the wind. So the Holy Spirit's the guiding force behind individual personalities, 40 of them, and experiences of each man to say exactly what God intended. Interestingly enough, God's the author of this word, but he uses different personalities in different time periods, in different circumstances, so that the end result is precisely what God wants to say. The Thessalonians accepted that. Many in our culture don't want to accept it. It's not because God is not clear, it's because the human heart is rebellious and doesn't want to do what God says, right? So God's word was given to us not just to inform us, but to work in us, to change us. Paul says God's word performs its work in you, and this this word work is is energeo, it means energy, like the energizer bunny, right? It's powerful, it means to effectively and continuously produce work 
God's word produces God's outcomes. So when we hear God's word and welcome it by faith, the Holy Spirit is the power of God into our lives, and he takes this word and he changes us. So you say, well, okay, so what's the work that God's word does in believers? Well, first of all, it saves you. 1 Peter 1.23, it says, you've been born again. That's salvation. Not of seed which is perishable, that's human, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. So the first thing the word of God can do is save your soul. The second thing the word of God does is make you more like Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and what? Profitable, useful, additive to do what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be adequately equipped for every good work. So the word of God shapes us more like Jesus. That's one of the reasons why having a daily diet of the word of God is crucial for your spiritual health. If, if, if Christians ate physically as much as they ate spiritually, most of us would lose weight. Just saying, I mean, you're not going to miss a meal. Well, don't miss a spiritual meal either. Don't be spiritually anemic, right? Come on. God's word works by teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, training us in righteousness, eliminating sin from our lives by bringing conviction of sin, encouraging us where we need encouragement, reminding us of God's promises when we're in very, very difficult, hard times, Comforting us when our hearts are broken. The word of God can comfort us, literally pick us up and carry us in many cases, and equipping us to do every good work. If you want 176 verses about what the word of God does, look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a 176 verse list. I think there's only two verses that don't describe what the word of God does in your heart and your life. Now, if you want God's word to work in you, you must know what it says, and then you must do what it says. James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, it doesn't say look casually at the word of God. It says look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what? Abides by it. Do what it says, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This person will be blessed in what they do, which means when you read the word of God, pay attention. Don't have your cell phone on with, you know, be texting people. Give God your full attention. Ask him to teach that mind of yours what he wants you to learn, and then do it, and then you'll be blessed. Most of us don't need more information. We just need to follow the truth we already know, right? When you obey what you already know, guess what? God will teach you more. Human wisdom, no matter how brilliant, is produced by what? Fallible, fallen, sinful human minds that are separated from God and blinded by sin. Human wisdom has no capacity to change your heart. None. It can give you lots of ideas about, well, you can tweak your life and you can you know, and start a few new habits, but it won't change your life, it won't change your heart, and it has nothing to do with salvation or eternity whatsoever. So Paul says, point one, he's grateful because they welcomed the word of God and they followed it. They did what it said. And that caused consequences. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus, that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's a mouthful. Let's unpack this. Here's the principle. When you follow God's word, the world will oppose you. But God will judge the world and give you his perspective and power to endure. When you follow God's word, 
the world will oppose you, but God will judge the world and give you his perspective and power to endure. So the Thessalonian believers had accepted God's word. They were following God's word. They had welcomed it in their heart and behavior. And as a result, they were persecuted and they chose to endure that suffering. Suffering means to experience physical pain, emotional, mental distress. Many of you in this room understand suffering. You have broken hearts. You have scar tissue. You've got all kinds of reasons that I'm with you there. So suffering is not new to the human condition. We're talking about suffering that comes from following the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's opposition. And we have some of that. It's increasing in our culture. It's probably going to get much, much more severe as time goes on. The Thessalonians were being persecuted by their own people, right? In the same way that the Jews from Judea persecuted the church uh, when it first got started, as Andrew talked about in Acts 1. It always hurts more when you're hated by people you think you know, right? Family, friends, countrymen, countrywomen. I mean, I'm talking about people that you have a relationship with and they oppose you. That puts a knife in pretty deep. And Paul says, you imitated the church of Jesus Christ in Judea. Now, they didn't know them personally, but they behaved in the same way. To, to imitate means to mimic. It means to copy. It means to model. So we know that the Apostle Paul had probably told them about the, the, the church in Jerusalem. That's where the church got started in Acts chapter 2. And what the Thessalonian church had in common with the Jerusalem church is they both followed Jesus and they both were being persecuted. And they both were suffering. And they both were encountering opposition. Anytime you and I actually live according to the truth of the Bible, it will change our behavior. Yes? Guess what? Godly behavior will almost always generate opposition because the world doesn't want to be convicted of their sin. And when you live holy lives, you convict people of sin because you don't participate in the same stuff that they do and that you used to do. Amen? So Paul now indicts the Jewish religious leaders for their long-standing opposition to God and his messengers. This is an enormously painful passage. I want you to understand a couple of things off the beginning. This is not anti-Semitism. Paul is a Jew. He loves the Jewish people. Romans 9 to 11, Paul weeps over their lostness. He says, I'm willing to give up my own salvation for the Jewish people. He loves the nation. There is no place for racial prejudice in God's people for any reason whatsoever, and this passage has been used in the past for that purpose which is evil and wicked before God. The reality is Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sins and my sins. By name, my sins put him on the cross. Not the Jews. Their sins put him on the cross. Not the Romans. The Roman sins. Human sin put Jesus Christ on the cross. But the reality is, Paul is going to state historical reality of what happened. The Jewish nation, the Jewish religious leaders in particular, had killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets before Jesus and had driven Paul out of multiple cities where he was preaching the gospel. Peter, in his great sermon in Acts 1, declared to the nation of Israel, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now this is occurring on Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection, which was 40 day, I mean 50 days after the ascension, which was 40 days after the resurrection. It's been about three months since the resurrection at this point in time. So this was fresh. The Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes in particular, demanded that Pontius Pilate condemn Jesus to death by crucifixion at the hands of Roman soldiers. They thought Jesus was worthy of death because he claimed to be God, even though they were convinced he was only a man. Peter said, this man performed hundreds of miracles in front of your eyes for three years, demonstrating his deity, and you would have none of it because his crowds were bigger than your crowd, and you got jealous over it at that point. Secondly, the Jewish religious leaders, this is not the people of the Jews, this is the Jewish religious leaders, 
instigated persecution against the followers of Jesus because they didn't want this false religion to spread. They believed that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was the God of the Jews and only of the Jews. God didn't have any room in his heart for the Gentiles, which is us, right? As a matter of fact, when you read the Old Testament, God is the God of the entire world, and he loves people. It doesn't say, for God so loved this group or that group. It says what? For God so loved the world that he gave. That includes you and I, thank God. Paul says that the Jewish leaders drove us out, and that word is very stark. It has the idea of hunting down an animal to kill it. They wanted Paul dead. They tried to kill him on multiple occasions. What is so ironic, until his conversion, who was the number one persecutor of the church? Paul himself. He was called Saul. And now he is the most persecuted one inside the church. Persecuted literally means to be driven out and rejected. Paul says that the Jewish leaders had not only killed Jesus, they had killed the prophets. And Jesus really took them to task. If you want a very strong passage, actually it's terrifying in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the Jewish religious leaders. And he says in Matthew 23, 34, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish legalist leaders before then had a long history of rejecting God and God's message, and killing God's messengers, the prophets. Paul says they are not pleasing to God. So the Thessalonians have accepted the word of God, they're walking by faith, and they're being persecuted by other religious people. And they're beginning to wonder whether they're wrong. How is that I'm being persecuted? Paul wants to encourage them, and he says, by the way, the people that are persecuting you, trying to kill you, they're displeasing to God. I want to reassure you that it's not your fault you're being persecuted. You're being persecuted for following Christ, not because of things you have done. You know, some people that are abused believe that it's their fault they're being abused, which is a lie, and Paul wants to make that extremely clear to these folks. It's not your fault you're being persecuted. You're being persecuted because you're following Jesus Christ. Paul also says people that oppose God generally wind up being hostile to other people as well. Have you ever noticed that people that are mad with God are usually mad at people? People that generally have a beef with God have a beef with other people as well. This word, hostile, he says people that are broken relationship with God are hostile to people. That literally means winds that blow against you and hinder progress. If you've been in Bakersfield for any length of time, have you ever been through one of our dust storms? Well, I mean, the wind comes out of the desert and just blows in dust where you can't see. And you go outside and you, 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 you take valley fever into consideration before you do that because all the dust here, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to see. It's hard to breathe. It's hard to navigate. And the wind just batters you, right? You don't want to be around it. That's what it's like being around hostile people. It's like being in a dust devil, dust hurricane. You know, you just don't want to be around it at that point in time. And Paul says, these folks not only persecuted and killed the prophets in Jesus, they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles. So they refused salvation for themselves. But even worse, they were actively hindering Paul from bringing the message of salvation to lost people. And Jesus said, better a millstone go around your neck and you be thrown in the midst of the sea than you hinder the gospel from going out to a little child they can be saved at that point, right? So the consequences are breathtaking, and they are severe. Verse 16b says, they are always filling up the measure of their sins. Let me try and unpack this. All choices create consequences. We know that. Especially the choice to reject Christ as Savior. However, you know and I know that the consequences of our sin are not always immediate. 
Yes? I used to sin before Christ, and I thought, it can't be that bad because I'm still here, baby. Now, that's stupid on steroids, right? That's how sinful I was. Because the lightning hasn't struck, I'm going to keep doing it. That sounds stupid. It is stupid. It's foolish. It's rebellious. Sometimes God allows people to sin. And continue in sin, it's like filling the bucket of their lives up with sin. It's almost as if God has a limit on how much sin he will allow before he takes action. Before someone's bucket is full and judgment falls. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. Now, the Amorites, they were the Canaanite people that lived in the land of Canaan, which God had promised Abraham. But God said, Abraham, your descendants are going down to Egypt for 400 years. And then they're going to come back and they're going to take this land. But he said, you can't have it now because their sin is not yet full. Their sin bucket is not yet overflowing in my judgment. So God gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. And they didn't. So Joshua conquered Canaan and destroyed him. People often assume that because judgment has not yet come, it's never going to come. The apostle Peter wrote that mockers were claiming that Jesus would never come back to judge sin. After all, people have been sinning since Adam, right? And the world still continues just as it always has. There doesn't seem to be any consequences for sin. You look around our world today and you see really bad behavior. And they keep behaving badly, right? Reminds me of the turkeys who think that just because they get fed every day, they will continue to get fed every day, and they will until just before Thanksgiving. <laughs> Peter reminds the mockers that God does judge sin. He says, you want proof? Look at the flood. God endured human sinfulness until he said, the bucket is full, I'm going to destroy the earth with the flood. And he did, and only eight people were left. Peter says, this present world is coming to an end. Jesus Christ is returning as judge, and he will destroy evil. Peter says, don't misinterpret God's patience with sinners as his acceptance of sin. God loves people, but he hates sin. Even now, he hates sin. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promises. So he, Peter says, Jesus promised to come back, and people are going, well, you know, he's on vacation. He's not paying attention. He's, he's not coming back. I mean, he hasn't come back yet. Peter said, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I've talked to people, and you have too, and they routinely say, well, if God is a good God, how come he doesn't come back and eliminate all the evil in the world? Of course, they say, well, he'd have to start with you and me, because we're evil, right? Of course, everybody says, well, deal with their evil, don't deal with mine. The reason God withholds his judgment is because he's merciful. He gives people time to repent. God did that with me, and I'm sure he's done it with you as well. Sometimes God allows people to sin and continue to sin so that they experience the negative consequences of their sin to the point where they will see their need for a Savior. When their life gets more catastrophic because of the consequences of their sin, maybe they'll wake up and say, I need a Savior. I need to do something different. My life is a disaster. So sometimes God allows that to happen. I would not be here if God judged sin the first round. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be talking. I'd be dead. Right? Sometimes God allows people to sin to demonstrate his justice. See, God always does what's right. In the end, everyone will get exactly what they deserve either based on their goodness or the blessings and goodness of Jesus Christ that are imputed to our account. Verse 16 says, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. 
and by, for example, by the way, he's using the Jewish nation here. God's wrath over the repeated sins of the Jewish nation was multi-layered and it lasted over many centuries. And he uses this as an example for us because we are sinners just like the Jewish people were sinners. What did God do? He condemned them to spend, what, 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they refused to believe him and possess the promised land. After centuries of idolatry, he did what? He exiled the Israel, the northern ten tribes of the Assyrians, and Judah the Babylonians. In 70 AD, more than one million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans during the destruction of Jerusalem, and the entire nation was driven out of their land for almost 2,000 years because they rejected their Messiah. And if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul says, you Gentiles, you tremble. Don't you poke the finger at the Jews and say, it won't happen to me. If they lost because they wouldn't walk by faith, you too walk by faith, only by faith. God's judgment's just not on the Jewish nation. This is given for our example. Future judgment is coming upon the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike, during the time of the tribulation, Revelation 6 to 18. During Christ's millennial kingdom, after Christ's millennial kingdom is over, Everyone who, re, who has rejected the gospel of salvation in Christ will, reject the, will face the last judgment, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. So let me discuss just real briefly wrath. Our world does not like to think about God's wrath. As a matter of fact, they're positively allergic to it. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. You should be very grateful God hates sin. Right? God's wrath is not capricious or uncontrolled. When we describe human wrath, you know what it means? It usually means someone lost their temper. They were filled with wrath and they did something stupid. Right? God never loses his temper. God never loses control of his temper, ever. He is perfectly just, and as such, he must judge sin or he's not a righteous God. If God refused to judge sin, if God said, ah, you know, I'll tolerate your evil, guess what? He's now evil. If he's evil, he's not qualified to pass judgment on anybody. He's no longer good if he's not just. So he has to be judging sin because he's a just God. But because he's merciful, he holds his judgment back. He restrains his judgment in order to give people time to repent. Why? Because he wants people in heaven. He wants people to be redeemed. His patience with us as sinners is amazing. I would have nuked the joint years ago. Just saying. I, you know, when you look at the evil in the world today, man, I have got some solutions. None of them are godly. All of them are self-centered and righteous, and man, I would feel good about dropping out. You know what, you know where. And the Lord says, that's exactly why you don't have any power. Right? That's because I have the power, because you don't love people like I love people. You didn't send your son to die for them like I did. You don't hate evil in yourself like I hate evil in yourself. Right? So we come back down and say, Lord, you are in control Thank you that you hate sin. Thank you that you will judge it. And thank you that you show mercy. And that's when you pray for your loved ones that you care about. And you pray that God will open their eyes. Verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken from you for a short time, in person, not in spirit, will all the more ego with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Here's the principle. God designed his family for fellowship. Doing life together divides your sorrows and multiplies your joys. God designed his family for fellowship. Doing life together divides your sorrows and not joys. Now, Paul's been accused of not caring for the Thessalonian believers. I mean, if you really cared about us, how come you haven't shown back up? So he tells them, I, I do love you, I want to see you, but I haven't returned because I've been hindered by Satan. And this word fellowship is real critical. Fellowship means shared life. It means common life. It means 
doing life together. We talk about that here a lot. We do life together. You know what the essence of fellowship on a horizontal level is? Give and take. Give and take. It's reciprocity. It's loving one another. Our fellowship in this class and in this church and in Jesus Christ's church around the world depends, first of all, on our fellowship vertically with Jesus Christ. You cannot have Christian fellowship with other people if you don't have fellowship with Jesus Christ first. Because only Jesus Christ will teach you how to sacrificially love each other. Because none of us are worth loving without Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we're self-centered. That's human nature. So our vertical relationship, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in us, teaches us how to love one another based on Christ's love. And that horizontal relationship is based on our membership in God's family. And we help carry another's burdens. That's why we do prayer requests and things like that. And we also delight in each other's joys. Paul says, we were taken away from you. We were driven out. And this taken away means orphaned. He's speaking about being a parentless child or a childless parent. It's this heart-rending separation. He says, we loved you and we were taken away. They were driven out of Dodge in fear of their lives. But he says, it's only for a short while. I intended to return as soon as possible. He said, we were separated in person, not in spirit. It literally means we were separated in face, not in heart. So I couldn't see you physically but I loved you and I'm thinking about you and praying for you all the time. He tells them, I tried to visit you, but I was hindered by Satan or thwarted by Satan. And that's the picture of a road that's so broken up that travel is blocked. I can't, I can't get there because the road is blocked and Satan is hindering. We don't know how or why, but it has to do with being blocked or cut off uh, in a foot race or like a military uh, being cut off at the pass, so to speak. Now, we know that Satan's a disembodied intellect. He's a fallen angel. He's a personality. He's got intellect, emotions, will. And the name Satan means adversary, adversary. Satan is the adversary of God, God's plan, God's people, God's purposes. And Satan is an adversary in the sense of he's an opponent in a lawsuit, and he is accusing you before the throne of God every day. And you know something? His accusations are accurate. You know what he says? That Brad Hannock, he's a sinner. Look what he did. And the father says, yep, I saw him do it. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paid for at the cross. You were accused by Satan every day. And the response is the same. You belong to him through the blood of Jesus Christ and your sin has been paid in full to Telestai. It is finished at the cross of Christ. We're not sure how Satan hindered Paul from returning to Thessalonica, but he specifically mentions Satan opposition. You know, we normally see all this human opposition to Paul, the human people that opposed him and tried to destroy him. What we don't see is the end the invisible spiritual players behind the scenes that influence these human opponents. But yet, as we found out in Daniel 10 a few weeks ago, and Ephesians 6, there's an ongoing angelic battle in the heavenly places, and spiritual warfare takes place here on earth every single day. It's invisible, but it's very real. Paul notes this in Ephesians 6. What does he say? Our struggle, we're in a war, is not against what? Flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. By the way, those names are for ranks of fallen angels. Rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces of wickedness. It's like you have a rank of angelic fallen angels. That's the he's talking about. That's your enemy. It's not people. People are not your enemy. People who oppose the gospel are not your enemy. They're deceived. They're in bondage. They're dead in trespasses and sin. Here's your enemy. Satan and his minions are continually trying to influence people to oppose God and the gospel because here's simple. Satan doesn't want anybody going to heaven. None of them. Paul says, I'm separated from you in spirit or, or physically. I'm with you in spirit. I'm harassed by Satan. I'm blocked by Satan. We don't know how from being with you physically but I still have great joy 
in my relationship with you. Verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here's the principle. When the race is hard, focus on the finish line. When the race is hard, focus on the finish line. Winning souls for Christ on earth produces eternal joy in heaven. Paul writes, look, my relationship with you and your faith in Christ represents hope and joy and a crown of exaltation for me and my team, Silas and Timothy. Hope is a confident expectation of something beneficial in the future. Hope believes that the future will be better than the present. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you were absolutely convinced the future was going to be worse than your present? It would be pretty depressing. Hope says, I believe that the future is going to be better than the present because God promised that it would be. Paul was looking forward to heaven. Joy is not based on circumstances. Paul says, I have joy in our relationship, and most importantly, I have joy in my relationship with Jesus Christ, because joy comes from God's presence, not our physical circumstances. Our physical circumstances are going to change. Every one of you this week will face heartbreak in one form or another, and disappointment, I promise you. If you live long enough, you're going to get your heart broken. And some of us live with a broken heart the rest of our life. That's reality, because many things that we experience in this life are not fixable by this life. They're fixable only by Jesus Christ, and he gives us what we need in order to endure what we need to endure. And he gives us joy in the middle of sorrow. Don't ask me how that works. I know that that's my experience uh, and your experience as well, because Jesus Christ promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. Paul says, not only do I have joy and hope, I have a crown. He's talking about the Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. This crown is a reward for soul winning, for introducing people to Jesus. Paul says, the Thessalonians themselves, my relationship with you, you're my crown. You're my joy. You're my hope. You're my reward because of your faith in Christ. And when it comes time for the rewards to be passed out at the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to be my reward because you will be in heaven because of your faithfulness to follow Jesus Christ. In the middle of all the struggles in this life, and there's a lot of them, and you're going to face more this coming week, and I will too, there's nothing more precious than hearing our master say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I want you to think about what are the few things that Jesus Christ is entrusting you with now? What are the small things? And they may be very big, but what are the things he's entrusting you with now that he wants you to be faithful with? He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He's given you family members. He's given you friends. He's given you job. He's given you health. He's given you a home. We have to be stewarding or managing these things, correct, for his glory. I had a dear friend who lost a brother 10 plus years ago, and she said, God has entrusted me with this heartbreak, and I need to manage this broken heart. And that spoke a lot to me when we buried our son at 15 years old, that this was something God entrusted to me. He said, I'm entrusting you with this brokenness. God's entrusted some of you with drug-addicted children and grandchildren. God's entrusted you some with maybe more grandchildren than you can manage. God's entrusted some of you with health situations, and you're saying, I don't know how to manage this. There is absolutely no hope for this. God's entrusted you with circumstances that maybe are so painful you can't even talk about them. You know something? He knows. He knows what you're dealing with because he's allowed it to happen because he loves us. He loves you. 
And that's the few things he says, I want you to be faithful managing what I've entrusted you and I will give you whatever you need in order to manage that so that when you come to heaven, I can put you in charge of many things and you will experience the complete joy of living in heaven sin-free. Nothing will motivate us to endure opposition and hardship like the hope of Christ's return and the joy of being in forever together in heaven. You know, Satan wants to use suffering to separate you from Jesus. Jesus wants to use suffering to draw you close to him. There's an old hymn that says, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Jesus promised almost at the very end of the last book in the Bible, Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. I remember being in my life such a mess, I said, Lord, you could show up right now because I'm facing a lot of mess here and I don't want to deal with it. You could come today and it would be great. Well, he didn't. He wanted me to face it. And my reward is with me, which means God, Jesus, is looking forward to rewarding us to render to every man according to what he has done. That should motivate us to live according to God's word and honor Jesus. Okay, let's summarize, and then we'll do a prayer and praise. One, when you welcome God's word into your life and act on it, it will change your life completely. Number two, when you follow God's word, the world will oppose you, but God will judge the world and give you his perspective and the power to endure. Number three, God designed his family for fellowship. When we do life together, we divide our sorrows and multiply our joys. And lastly, when the race is hard, focus on the finish line. Winning souls for Christ will produce eternal joy in heaven. There was a lot of meat on this bone today. Thank you for staying with me as we kind of chewed it together. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.